welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. On October 5th, 2020, the first Monday in October last year, the United States Supreme Court began the 2020-2021 court term. And on July 2nd of this year, the court issued its final decision of the term. This was a consequential term as it was the first term without Justice Ginsburg, who passed away on September 18th, 2020. And it was the first term of Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who was sworn less than six weeks later, and while ballots were still being cast in the 2020 November general election. With the addition of Justice Barrett to the court, the conservatives now have a six justice majority. The court this term issued 67 merit decisions. And during this show, we're gonna talk about some of the major cases and their implications. Joining us for this discussion are three of our wonderful colleagues. We have NCCU law professors, Don Corbett, Tamika Moses, and our recently retired colleague, Susan Hauser. So thank you all for for joining us. Um, We've got a lot to talk about, so we're gonna jump right into it. And we're gonna talk about a couple of cases, like five cases, and then we're going to hopefully have time at the end of reviewing these cases to just give our thoughts about the Supreme Court, this current term, and then also going forward. So the first case we're gonna talk about is Lang v. California, and Professor Tamika Moses is going to share a little bit about the facts of the case, the court's conclusion, and her thoughts about where we go forward. Professor Moses. Thank you, April. So Lang v. California is a very interesting case. It is a Fourth Amendment case involving a warrant exception related to exigent circumstances. Regarding the facts, Lang is a case involving Mr. Lang, who's driving down a highway in Sonoma, having a pretty good time. He has his windows down, his music is loud, he's honking his horn, and of course he captures the attention of a highway patrol officer in the process. So this officer decides to follow Mr. Lang and after trailing him for a little while, he activates his sirens and attempts to pull him over. Mr. Lang continues to drive about hundred feet and as the court describes about 45 seconds into his garage and into, well, into his driveway and then into his garage. Uh, The officer follows him into the garage, starts conducting some sobriety field tests, which of course Mr. Lang is going to not pass, right? Given his actions on the road. Um, And then he's later given a blood test, which shows that his alcohol content is three times the legal limit. Um, So during the court proceedings below, Mr. Lang files a motion to suppress all evidence related to his intoxication and his DUI offense that he is charged with later. Um, And during that process, the California courts say, no, no, Mr. Lang, because you fled into your garage, the officer was able to enter your garage without a warrant um, because that flight created an exigent circumstance. And so, you know, you won't be able to suppress this evidence. Your case will proceed as normal. Um, Take your show to the Supreme Court if necessary, for lack of a better phrase. 
So the issue really in this particular case is whether or not the California courts appropriately applied that blanket rule, which we call a categorical warrant exception to cases where misdemeanor, people charged with misdemeanors or suspect of misdemeanors enter their home in flight um, and trying to invade a lawful arrest. What the Supreme Court is looking at is whether or not they should create this categorical approach, right, to misdemeanor offenses in particular, or if they should apply something we call case-by-case -case analysis, which is usually applied in cases involving exigent circumstances. So Justice Kagan, writing for the majority, notes a few things that are kind of unique to misdemeanor cases while also outlining Fourth Circuit, well, not Fourth Circuit, Fourth Amendment, excuse me, precedent. Um, at the beginning, Justice Kagan talks about the Fourth Amendment and how typically when you talk about the home and its curtilage, which includes the garage that Mr. Lang was talking about, um, the sanctity of the home is key. An officer typically cannot enter that home unless they have a warrant. Now, of course, there are certain exceptions, which we call uh, warrant exceptions, and one of them is exigent circumstances. Typically, when we talk about exigent circumstances in felony cases, we're looking at cases where the officers need to enter for emergencies, perhaps to render some kind of aid to someone who needs it or some kind of medical attention to prevent um, an officer, not an officer, from a defendant from destroying some kind of evidence that the officer wants to get that is inside the home, or perhaps to enter to get somebody from fleeing from outside the back of the door or something like that. And again, these are situations that are typically reserved for felony offenses. So what Justice Kagan and the majority is examining is whether or not those same instances apply to misdemeanor offenses. And in determining that it does not, one thing that they consider is one, misdemeanor offenses are typically minor, right? So do you really want to allow an officer to enter a home without a warrant for someone who is suspected of a DUI like Mr. Lang, or perhaps a teenager who is entering their home because they see the sirens and they're getting afraid um, and they don't know what their parents are gonna do? Or anyone else who just for some innocuous reason is entering their home and not stopping when law enforcement is trying to stop them. The other thing that Justice, Justice Kagan wanted to um, keep in mind in looking at this misdemeanor exception is whether or not we want to treat dangerous felon, well, people suspected of committing dangerous felonies, <laughs> the same as those who are suspected of shoplifting and things like that. And so in looking at those situations, Justice Kagan just basically says, Look, officers, if you want to enter the home without a warrant for someone suspected of committing a misdemeanor, even if they flee into this home, you really need to apply this case-by-case -case analysis and determine whether or not an exigent circumstance exists. You cannot apply the categorical warrant exception that the California courts attempted to apply, right? And so that's basically the holding of the majority is that in misdemeanor cases, there is no blanket rule. Um, even if this person does fly, fly, flee into their home, you still need to look at the circumstances of this particular situation to determine whether or not an exigency, an emergency is there that warrants the, the entrance into that home without a, without a warrant. Um, two things I wanna note <laughs> related to the concurring opinions here. Um, the first is Chief Justice Roberts' concurrence. Chief Justice Roberts is pretty clear. He would apply the categorical warrant exception that California applied below. He said, anytime you flee from law enforcement, regardless of if it's a misdemeanor or a felony, an exigency exists. That's an exigent circumstance that allows the officer to follow you into your home to finish that arrest. Okay, so in his mind, he doesn't care if it's a felony, a misdemeanor, or any other kind of offense. If you flee, they're coming in behind you. Why this is a concurrence and not a dissent, however, is because Chief Justice Roberts is saying, Okay, even though I'm following you into this home, the one thing that has to be there is some kind of hot pursuit. So when you think about hot pursuit, you think about people weaving in and out of traffic, someone jumping over fences, 
discarding evidence along the way, right? That clearly in his mind is something you need to go, you know, you need to follow someone who's fleeing in that situation. But in this case, remember Mr. Lang drives 100 feet, a 45 second drive into his garage after the officer activates his sirens. And so he says that he will remand the case for the court to determine whether or not there is some kind of hot pursuit here to begin with, which I thought was pretty interesting. The other concurrence I wanted to highlight briefly, Justice Thomas, um, which I thought was pretty interesting because he's saying, yes, I agree, we need to remand this, but keep in mind, um, California, even if you find that there is a Fourth Amendment violation here, remember you have to go to step two. So step two is even if there is a violation, should the evidence still be suppressed, right? Because the court is always clear with a lot of their opinions is that suppression of the evidence is um, a tool of last resort. You know, it shouldn't be an automatic if there's a Fourth Amendment violation, we're suppressing the evidence. We need to still go into this case to determine whether or not the evidence should stand or should be used at the trial court level. So Justice Thomas just nicely writes here, um, reminder, <laughs> even if you find there is a violation, you still need to answer whether or not there should be suppression of that sobriety test and of the blood test that came thereafter. So in the end, um, what do I think this, this, I don't know what I think, well, let me take that back. In terms of the implications of this case, I believe that it's gonna have little effect on how this is worked in practice. So when you look at misdemeanor cases on a case-by-case -case basis where there is flight, as the concurrence notes and the majority notes, in nine out of 10 cases, the officers will be able to articulate some kind of emergency or some kind of exigency that warrants their entry into the home without a warrant. So although the course tries to car carve out this little exception for misdemeanors, I think in practice, when it comes to the application of the Fourth Amendment in the exigent circumstances exception, more often than not, you'll find that the officer was able to enter the home without a warrant in a case involving a suspect who flees. You know, uh, Professor Moses, the one question that, that I have, and, and, and the court did not address this, I don't know whether it was raised or not in the case, but based on this, uh, uh, Mr. Lang's uh, conduct, was there probable cause for the officer to uh, believe that he was under the influence uh, or of any other offense uh, that uh, California law would uh, would recognize. I think the only thing he had probable cause for was that second offense that he was charged with, right? The noise infraction, because they are saying his music is loud, the windows are down, he's on this public street, and assuming that his music was loud enough to exceed whatever the limit is in California, perhaps he had probable cause for that. But I agree with you, there was nothing related to intoxication at that particular period because they're not outlining any activity related to him swerving or not being able to stay within the lane. It's really about the noise and the honking. He's not speeding or doing anything else in that respect. So to answer your question, no, <laughs> there is no probable cause for the intoxication piece of that offense. Professor Moses, were you surprised by, by this decision? And, and it was a unanimous decision, but as you noted, not all the justices agreed on the, the rationale supporting um, the conclusion. Did you have any predictions going in and were you surprised at how the court um, ruled in this case? I can't say that I was surprised, um, only because when it comes to flight, that is something that kind of elevates every situation, regardless of if it's a misdemeanor case or a felony. Um, so I totally thought that they would um, apply the categorical approach because as Chief Justice Roberts notes in his opinion, um, there's a lot of precedent for that. 
where when it comes to flight, they're saying, hey, the officers, if an arrest is started on the street and you flee into your home, the officers can follow you there. And so I thought they were going to follow that precedent to a T and kind of move on. Um, and so I was surprised by this case by case analysis, typically because particularly because it's typically applied after the fact, right? It's typically the courts <laughs> that are going back to saying, okay, let's, let's look at the situation at the time and applying you know, the facts of this particular case, um, did an exigency exist? Um, whereas the argument always is, you never know um, what the officer is gonna do on the street. And so you always have to think about if I were in the officer's shoes, um, is it reasonable for them to follow this individual into their home? So to answer your question, yes, I was surprised. Um, but like I said, when it comes to application, I don't think it's gonna make much of a difference in practice. Great, thank you, Professor Moses. All right, so we're gonna move on from the Fourth Amendment to the First Amendment. And so we have the case of Mahanoy Area School District VBL and Professor Corbett, our con law expert is gonna take us through that case. Hey, Professor Dawson, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So this this case, and if I get too long-winded, just you know, mute me or cut me off like the Sandman or something. So uh, if th this particular case concerned a young lady who was trying out for a varsity cheerleading team at her high school. She didn't make the team, and she was instead extended an invitation to participate on the JV team. She'd already done the JV thing. She didn't want to do the JV thing again. She didn't take it very well. So she and one of her friends uh, went to a convenience store on a Saturday after she found out about this decision and together they took a picture with uh, her cell phone in which they're giving the camera the middle finger so then in case you had any doubt about how she felt about things uh, she used a very famous four-letter word to describe how she felt about cheerleading and school etc and then she posted an image to snapchat which is a social media application now that the internal functions of Snapchat usually kill all of those messages within 24 hours. But she sent it out to 250 people. And some of her friends took separate images of this of the snap with her with their cell phones, and they sent it out to more people. And uh, this young lady had the misfortune of one of those kids receiving it being the daughter of one of the cheerleading coaches. So uh, that coach took it to the other coach and they took it to the administration. And the school determined that the profanity in the post violated the team rules and regulations and they ended up suspending her from the team for a year. So she sued and claimed that the school had violated her constitutional rights and uh, the rights being her right to free speech. So it makes its way up to the Supreme Court. Now, just as a little bit of backdrop, back in 1969, the Supreme Court's first case involving this intersectionality between uh, students' right to free speech and the school's right to discipline students came about in a case called Tinker v. Des Moines School District out of Iowa. And the speech in that case involved uh, a group of students wearing black armbands to protest the Vietnam War. And the court uh, rather famously said that kids don't leave their constitutional rights at the schoolhouse gates when they come uh, into the building every day. And as long as those speech activities don't materially or substantially interfere with the operations of the school, then the school can't punish students for that, for that uh, kind of speech. So after that case, though, there were a number of other students that had gotten to the court on free speech arguments after being disciplined and all of them had lost. So the issue in this case was a little bit different because the kids were off campus during non-school hours at the time of the speech in question. So the issue before the court was whether the school had the ability to punish the kids, 
for essentially what amounted to off-campus speech. And the school said, yeah, because cheerleading ultimately is an extracurricular activity that's founded by the school. And even though she wasn't in a brick and mortar setting, it had the ability to impact what was going on in the school. So as I said, the, the, it works, works its way up to the Supreme Court and the court did not agree with the school district. Uh, now, they also didn't create a one size fits all approach to off-campus speech. They kind of stayed away from that. And they said that there's a handful of things that you need to consider that make off-campus speech a little bit different than speech on the campus. First, when kids are outside of school, it's gonna be the parents who are typically the primary caregivers and therefore they should be the primary arbiters of discipline for whatever kids do outside of school. So because kids are, or schools have a more limited framework in terms of, of disciplining and regulating kids outside of school, then you don't want a situation where schools are standing in the shoes of parents all day, every day. We expect that when the kids are in school, maybe if they're playing football or playing tennis uh, on behalf of the school, then you get that, but not necessarily when they're just off campus doing regular Saturday afternoon things. And the other concern that the court stated was that if you give schools the right to punish students for off-campus speech at all times, then you may end up actually stifling student speech in a way that's undes uh, undesirable because kids may be worried about what they say on a political, like you could foresee a situation where maybe a child participates in a Black Lives Matter march or something, and then another uh, a conservative element within the school finds out and they try to punish the kid for the speech in that particular context. So uh, because they don't want to stifle that kind of speech, uh, the court says we have to be really careful about off-campus speech. So, and, and finally, they said that schools as one of our institutional guideposts also have the same responsibility to make sure that as other government entities that we protect speech that we don't like and that ends up strengthening the speech rights of the speech that we do like. So, so in essence, uh, the court essentially said that the, the, the discipline that was issued to this particular child didn't meet the standard that was established in Tinker. So because it did not cause like what we would define as a material or substantial disruption to the school day, they said they didn't think that it merited the, the suspension uh, from the cheerleading activities. So they found that uh, that the school did indeed violate her rights. And as I said, it was the first time since 1969 that a student had actually won in the court as to that particular question. Uh, but again, as I said, they never, they, they said, we're not going to create a hard and fast rule here in terms of what off-campus speech looks like. So as a result, <clears throat> uh, we'll deal with that when we get to it, essentially is what they said. But at least in the narrow prism of this case, they said that you know we, we felt like her rights were violated and the school was a little out of pocket for, for suspending her for the year. All right, so Professor Corbett, uh, we do have some questions, but we're gonna sure. take a quick break. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking about cases from this most recent Supreme Court term. And we're talking with three of our colleagues, NCCU law professor Don Corbett, who teaches constitutional law, NCCU law professor Tamika Moses, who teaches criminal procedure, and our recently retired colleague, NCCU law professor Susan Hauser, who teaches among other courses or who taught among other courses bankruptcy. We're going to have to take a quick break. We hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. Good evening. My name is Hannah Gaines, and I am a current senior at North Carolina Central University. This is your Community Events Spotlight. 
The first event we are highlighting is part of a monthly history series focusing on Durham's historically black neighborhoods. This month's spotlight is on the Elkwakwian Club. This event takes place on Friday, July 30th at 12 p.m. You can RSVP at durhamcommunityengagement.org. The second event is the Black Farmers Market. This event is going on now and doesn't end until December 12th. It's from 1.30 p.m. to 4.30 p.m. at the Golden Belt. This is a great opportunity to not only get local products, but also an amazing way to support Black-owned businesses. You can learn more about these events by visiting www.durhamcommunityengagement.org slash events. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with three of our colleagues this hour about cases stemming from the most recent Supreme Court term. We have with us here in our Zoom studio, Tamika Moses, who teaches criminal procedure, Susan Hauser, who teaches bankruptcy, and Don Corbett, who teaches constitutional law. So Professor Corbett, right before the break, you were talking about uh, the First Amendment cheerleader case, which I, I suspect uh, many folks may have heard about because it's got you know facts that grab your attention. Um, and so this was a, an 8-1 decision, so not unanimous. There was one dissenting voice. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that dissent? Sure, sure. So uh, it was Justice Thomas. Um, and true to form, uh, I think he sees himself as the guardian of text and history when it comes to these types of decisions. And there are a couple of other areas like you know, the Commerce Clause and more recently a defamation case called New York Times v. Sullivan, which which the court has pretty established precedent that he essentially wants to detonate because he believes they're not true enough to uh, historical precedent. And that's where that's how he felt here. He felt like the school probably did have the ability to discipline her uh, because his history, he cited a case from the 1850s out of Vermont as kind of the linchpin to show how history suggests that we've traditionally given schools the ability to regulate uh, kids in the place of parents when it was appropriate. And I think he had some concerns about uh, judicial intervention uh, in matters like this one without being tethered to historical uh, precedent in some way, shape or form. He did uh, concede that off-campus speech was a little bit different from on-campus speech, but he felt like the opinion strayed a little too far away from uh, the history that had been established in some previous decisions. And that was why he descended. What, what impact do you think that this is gonna have on uh, students? Yeah, it's uh, tough to who, say. Uh, who speak as they wish, whether they are on campus or off campus. And yeah, uh, much of that speech is then uh, recorded on uh, social media and distributed. Uh, so is there a real impact uh, that this case is going to uh, have? That is the million dollar question, Professor Joyner. And I don't think anybody knows. And I don't think the Supreme Court knows. I think, I think Professor Joyner, in large part, the reason that they were so apprehensive about creating a hard and fast standard here 
is because now, uh, especially because if you look at how we had to conduct schools in the last year because of COVID-19, now you have this influence of technology uh, that is going to pervade instruction probably for the foreseeable future on some level. So when you have technology in that way, it really blurs the lines of what is off-campus speech versus what is on-campus speech. And the other problem I think that, that exists is that the technology evolves much faster than the law does, right? So, so as a, for instance, once upon a time, MySpace was, was the thing in terms of social media applications. And I think it had its peak users in 2008. Now it's kind of dwindled off the scene. It's been replaced by other stuff. But there was still litigation concerning MySpace cases uh, in 2013, five years after the fact. So I think the problem is if you if you create kind of a hard and fast law or rule here, but the technology evolves in a way that you don't foresee, then it could be that you know maybe that particular uh, rule or law or holding isn't as effective going forward because these social media mechanisms are so different. TikTok is completely different from Snapchat, which is completely different from Instagram, which is completely different from Zoom. So, so I think there was obviously a bit of judicial modesty here that was helpful. The problem is if I'm a school administrator, I don't know how much I can take from this decision in terms of crafting policy that I can use going forward uh, so people are clear on what's going on. I think that speaks to your question. And I think we just don't know yet. I think we have to kind of see how some of these other cases shake out. Uh, well, one, one other question on that. Uh... This was a high school student uh, yes, sir. in this uh, particular uh, uh, situation. Does this ruling apply to uh, colleges and uh, universities and speech by uh, students on those uh, campuses? No, sir. This is a, this is a, essentially a K through 12 holding. Like the college cases involving free speech are really, really different. I think the idea behind the court is that now once kids enter college, they're essentially adults. And those lines, our guidelines with regard to free speech applications are a little bit different because of the age and maturity level of the students. Uh, so uh, we encourage that kind of behavior on a college level because we don't have to worry so much about controlling the learning environment uh, with, with older students. But in K through 12 circumstances, it's a lot different than that. And schools are generally afforded a lot more latitude to make sure all their uh, pedagogical you know, goals can be met and to do that, they got to control the environment. So this is essentially going to be a K through 12 holding going forward, uh, no real application to uh, college, undergrad, professional school, et cetera, that I see. All right, thank you, Professor Corbett. You're and welcome. We're, we're gonna stick with the First Amendment and we're going to discuss Fulton v. Philadelphia. Professor Hauser, take us through that case, please. Yeah, thank you for, for having me. Um, and un unlike all of my colleagues, I do not teach con law. So, so this is an interesting, um, interesting thing for me. Um, I've, I've written some about the intersection between LGBTQ rights and bankruptcy, interestingly. So I have like that little background for this case because it hits that area. Um, so Fulton versus City of Philadelphia was one of the anticipated, highly anticipated cases this term, and it was decided on June 17th. Um, the city of Philadelphia operates a foster care system by contracting with state licensed social services agencies. And those state licensed agencies do foster care inspections and do placements. Um, so they, they 
um, basically set up foster care parents, authorized foster care parents, and then do placements. Um, some of the state licensed social services agencies are private, um, and Catholic Social Services in particular um, is a state licensed foster care agency. Um, it has had a contract with the city of Philadelphia for more than 50 years um, and has operated very successfully. Um, so CSS, Catholic Social Services, um, is at the heart of this case. In 2018, a newspaper ran a story in which a spokesman for the Archdiocese of Philadelphia stated that CSS would not consider any prospective foster parents, parents who were in same-sex marriages. And um, along that line, CSS um, stated that it believes that marriage is a sacred bond between a man and a woman. And because CSS understands that the certification of prospective foster parents is an endorsement of their relationships, the CSS could not certify any unmarried couples, whether gay or straight, and also refused to certify any same-sex married couples. So um, after the newspaper story ran in 2018, um, this kind of blew up in Philadelphia. The city council literally called for an investigation, um, saying that the city had laws in place to protect quote, it's, it's people, the city's people from discrimination under the guise of religious freedom. Uh, the Philadelphia Commission on Human Relations held an inquiry. The commissioner of the Department of Human Services held a meeting with the leadership of CSS. And uh, immediately after the meeting, the department informed CSS that it would no longer refer children to CSS. So, um, and the, at that time, CSS was under a contract with the city. Um, by the time of the Supreme Court decision, there is no contract with the city. So um, the city um, justified this on the basis that the CSS's refusal to certify same-sex couples violated two provisions um, of non-discrimination law that applied to this fact pattern. Uh, one is the contract with the city itself has a non-discrimination clause in it. And the other is the city's fair practices ordinance imposes a citywide um, citywide uh, prohibition on discrimination as well. Um, and one thing that's kind of interesting as you consider the implications of this decision is that neither of these prohibitions on discrimination is limited to LGBTQ rights. They also prohibit discrimination on the basis of race and sex and other bases. So, um, so the, um, the city basically uh, used these two um, provisions um, to refuse to enter into a future foster care contract with the CSS. Um, CSS didn't back down and instead filed a lawsuit in federal court against the city. Um, and CSS alleges in the lawsuit that the freeze on referrals violates the free exercise clause of the First Amendment. They also had a free speech uh, claim in there that was dropped um, or not carried forward. So this really deals with whether the city's prohibition on non-discrimination violates CSS's right to the free exercise of its religious beliefs and practices. Um, in the lawsuit, CSS sought injunctive relief, which is essentially an order saying, don't do that, um, stop doing that, or start doing something. And um, the federal district court denied that relief um, and found this actually a, a, a fair, apparently a pretty easy decision under existing precedent. Um, it went to the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, which affirmed, um, also based on the same precedent. And so the decision 
is really focused not, in my view, not so much on LGBTQ rights as it is on the precedent, which is a case called Employment Division, Department of Human Resources of Oregon versus Smith. And um, the Smith decision was decided in 1990. And it's very clear from reading the opinions in this case that uh, three and possibly as many as five justices are on board with the idea of overruling the Smith decision. So um, Smith um, holds that the free exercise clause can't be used to challenge a neutral law of general applicability, um, or at least kind of in lay terms, um, it, it actually holds that um, that a neutral law of general applicability has to be reviewed under rational basis review, which means it will be held, upheld if there's any rational reason for that law. And um, so after Smith, a law that burdens religion or burdens the free exercise of religion can't be challenged um, as long, can't be challenged easily at least, um, as long as it applies to everyone in the state equally and doesn't punish conduct solely because it is religiously motivated. So the issue in the case um, it can be framed in like several different ways. Justice Roberts says the question is simply whether the actions of Philadelphia violate the First Amendment. Uh, you can focus on CSS and its right to freely exercise its religious beliefs and say the issues whether the non-discrimination requirements violate CSS's right to freely exercise its religious beliefs. Or you could focus on potential foster parents and the city and say, uh, does it violate their rights um, by allowing CSS to discriminate against same-sex married couples? So the focus of the Supreme Court is clearly on the uh, free exercise rights of CSS. And uh, the holding in the simplest terms is the city's gonna lose um, and CSS wins. The um, non-discrimination provisions unconstitutionally burden CSS's religious exercise rights by forcing it to approve of relationships that are inconsistent with its beliefs. Um, how we get there is very interesting. So this is a nine to nothing decision, which it's unanimous, which is fascinating. So um, there are three concurring opinions and they are pretty forceful. Um, and the majority opinion is written by Justice Roberts and he is joined by the liberal justices on the court, Breyer, Kagan and Sotomayor. So um, when this first came out, I looked at it and thought, how could this be unanimous? Um, how, how are the liberals like on board with this? And it seems pretty clear that they joined Roberts to make a majority opinion. I'm no expert, you, you guys are experts, but um, Justice Alito wrote a concurrence that's more than 70 pages long. And his concurrence is arguing that the Smith decision should be overruled. Uh, there's a second concurrence in which um, Justice Gorsuch um, also argues that Smith should be overruled. And in fact, he's, he kind of complains at the beginning of his concurrence that uh, the Supreme Court actually granted cert to consider whether Smith should be overruled. And he's not happy that Roberts has found a way to get around that. So um, Roberts is writing the majority opinion. Uh, he finds for CSS. But he works very, very hard to find it unnecessary to consider whether Smith should be overruled. And that seems to be the, the crux of what's going on. So um, the, uh, we, can, we can talk about the, um, the analysis, how he gets there, but I think that's the, um, 
the basic idea of what's going on is he is not focused so much on um he's not focused so much on the um, LGBTQ rights issue as he is on not changing the standard of review of free exercise cases. So I'm gonna let one of the con law folks, one of, one of our hosts help direct this from here. So I don't keep, keep kind of rambling on, so. Well, before we pose any questions to you, uh, we're going to have to take a break uh, right here. Uh, this is the uh, Legal Eagle Review, and uh, we are engaged in our regular uh, Supreme Court uh, review, uh, where we look back on decisions uh, issued in the uh, last term by the U.S. Supreme Court and make some determination of uh, whether they make sense to us and uh, how they might be applied in the future. We have three of our colleagues from the law school that's aiding us in that uh, process, uh, but we want you to stay with us. We still have a couple more opinions that we want to uh, discuss. We'll be right back, so uh, hang in there. Good evening. My name is Reginald Woods II, and I am a current 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And I would like to personally thank you for supporting and listening to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking show that is made possible by the Virtual Justice Project of the North Carolina Central University School of Law, as well as listeners like yourself. For more information regarding the show, or past episodes, or the latest happenings surrounding our host, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Legal Eagle Review. Again, my name is Reginald Wist II, and thank you for listening. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for uh, staying with us as we uh, continue our discussions about uh, some of the uh, more recent uh, Supreme Court decisions uh, ended by the uh, new uh, remodeled uh, Supreme Court. And uh, we're gonna talk about in a few minutes uh, the uh, uh, projections or impact going on further. But right now we're talking about the uh, Fulton versus Philadelphia uh, case and uh, Professor uh, Susan Hauser uh, had uh, provided some uh, insight into that uh, decision. Uh, Professor Hauser, one of the things that you, you mentioned uh, in your synopsis was the, uh, uh, the politics of the, uh, of, of the case. So we like to think that uh, the Supreme Court justices decide uh, cases just on the facts and the law. Can you kind of talk about uh, this uh, distinction between the facts and the law and the politics that the court uh, might be engaged in and, and it was engaged in, particularly in, uh, in this case? Yeah, I think this, um, this decision, you actually see that um, pretty clearly once you take a look at it. So. Um, if Justice Kagan or Justice Sotomayor had written the majority opinion, it would read very differently, I think. Um, 
but they don't have that option anymore. And so they're on a court in which the conservative justices are essentially um, a, able to be splintered, I'll put it that way. Um, so when we look at the, the opinion, um, there are three concurrences and Justice Alito, who's very conservative, uh, wrote a concurrence that's about 70 pages long and uh, is joined by Justice Thomas and Gorsuch. Gorsuch wrote an opinion, uh, a concurring opinion, that's joined by Thomas and Alito. Um, and all three of them are united in the idea that the Smith decision should be overturned. Um, and, and this really goes to the degree of uh, deference that should be given to legislation um, that impacts in some way religious practices. Um, and they feel like that um, the any any type of legislation, law, or provision that restricts the free exercise of religion should be subject to strict scrutiny, um, which means it's allowed only if there's a compelling reason that's narrowly tailored to reach that result. Um, the other justices, and some of them, I think, are secretly kind of aghast at the idea that Smith would be struck down, um, and so they kind of come together to to pull the opinion the other way. Um, to do this, just, Justice Roberts is, right, is working really hard uh, to come up with an analysis where he can, he can uphold uh, CSS's ability to do what it wants, but yet not overrule Smith. And so that seems a little strained to me, um, but, uh, but they, they do ultimately get the result that they want without changing the law in ways that they do not want to change it. Yeah, and I, I think um, it, it's worth emphasizing or, or at least kind of fleshing out how justices are assigned the opinions. And so, you know, we're talking about these opinions. We, we mentioned if it was unanimous or if there was, if it's a split decision, if they're concurring opinions. And the majority opinion is authored by the most senior justice in the majority, you know, to whom they assign it. Mm -hmm. And so this case, the, the end result of this case, we know that um, CCS was going to, or CSS was going to win this case. And so Chief mm -hmm. Justice Roberts was in the majority. And so he had the option of either uh, assigning it to himself or assigning it to one of the other justices, probably one of the other conservative justices. He assigned the decision to himself and I think in part, and, and Professor Hauser, you kind of, you know, touched upon this because he wanted to write a decision in such a way that it would not go too far. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think when you look at, um, you know, um, Alito, Gorsuch and Thomas, that to the extent there was frustration, which I think is evident when you look at Alito's 70-page um, mm -hmm. opinion, yeah. part of that frustration may even be towards Chief Justice Roberts. And, and this is not the first time we've seen him assign a decision to himself, um, Affordable Care Act, where he is able to control mm -hmm. you know, how far the law goes. And so this is a, a fascinating case. Um, and we're gonna continue to see this issue, this issue between free exercise uh, rights and LGBTQ rights. Uh, we saw it with Masterpiece Cake and, and we're gonna continue to see this. And, uh, how the court and the justices um, view uh, this issue 
it's, it's you know, we're going to continue to see, I think, the politics on the court uh, play out what happens. Mm -hmm. So thank you very much for yeah. uh, the review of, of that case. And so now we've got Brnovich and Irv, you're going to take us through that case. Yeah, um, this is a, um, a decision that could take some time to talk about, but I'm going to try to streamline it as much as possible. This is uh, a case that I think follows the old pattern of uh, bad facts make uh, bad law. Uh, and uh, I think this falls directly into uh, that, uh, that notion. Uh, here we have uh, two specific uh, provisions of the uh, Arizona law that are really in place here in North Carolina. One has to do with uh, out of precinct voting on election day, uh, where the law required that uh, a person voting on election day had to go to an assigned precinct in order to, uh, to vote. And if the person did not vote in the assigned uh, precinct, uh, then their vote would not, uh, would not count. Uh, the other issue raised is really not a voting rights issue. Uh, it is couched as such, but it deals with uh, a law that criminalizes the conduct of a third person uh, who uh, gathers uh, a mail-in ballot and returns it to the uh, registrar or the Board of Election for it to be counted. And in Arizona, uh, that, is a, uh, that is a crime, uh, that unless you are a postal worker, a uh, member of the uh, Board of Elections, or a family member or caretaker uh, in uh, Arizona, then you cannot uh, uh, obtain a mail-in ballot and return it for someone who has uh, voted uh, in, uh, in an election. And uh, the uh, Democratic National Committee uh, decided that it wanted to challenge those two provisions of law uh, based on uh, uh, the impact based on race uh, within, the, uh, within the state. And you're dealing principally with uh, uh, African-Americans, uh, the indigenous uh, populations, and uh, Latinx. Uh, and uh, the facts showed that roughly 99% of the ballots cast in Arizona were counted. And very few votes were not counted because people voted in the wrong precinct, that it was at best in the neighborhood of 1% uh, of the uh, ballots for the racial minorities and probably a half of 1% for, uh, for whites. Uh, the uh, court made the uh, uh, and this is uh, Justice Alito uh, writing this, uh, this, uh, this opinion, uh, made the point that in uh, Arizona, uh, people who uh, mailed in ballots had 27 days to get those ballots into the uh, Board of Election. And then they had 27 days of early voting uh, that occurred in, uh, in uh, Arizona. And people could vote in any precinct that they wanted to do during those 27 uh, days. And as it relates to the uh, racial impact 
of the uh, out of uh, precinct uh, voting that it was virtually non-existent, or as the court described it, it was de minimis. And because it was de minimis, and there were there was no evidence that it was enacted with a discriminatory impact, then the impact or the effects of that was uh, de minimis. But then they went on to say that when you look at these cases, you can't look at these individual procedures in isolation. You have to review them in the totality of the circumstances by looking at all of the availability. And as it relates to uh, voting, uh, that mere inconvenience is not enough, uh, that there is a burden associated for every person in voting uh, because you have to go somewhere you have to travel some distance, some way uh, in order to vote. So the mere inconvenience is not evidence of uh, racial disparity. And because some people might uh, incur more inconvenience than others, that the key point is whether the voting process is open to all on an equal basis. And in this case, because there were so many different ways of voting, uh, then that, um, uh, that, that this did not uh, have a uh, disparate impact on uh, racial minorities that uh, the people were able uh, to demonstrate. And then that uh, the uh, ballot harvesting process uh, that, uh, uh, that they dealt with in this case was not uh, significant uh, because the state had the right to uh, uh, protect the integrity of the vote, even where there was no history of uh, voter fraud or voter misconduct uh, in, that, uh, in that state. And the particular issue here was one that uh, made sense in light of maintaining the integrity of the uh, court system. This was a case where the uh, local uh, district court had ruled in favor of uh, Arizona. The appellate court had ruled in favor of Arizona and then an unbought court uh, reversed that. And the court simply said that we agree with all of the fact finders that this is not the case where there is a violation, but they impose some very significant uh, points uh, to consider that further weakens the impact of the uh, Voting Rights Act. Yeah, Irv, so we are, as you noted, there's a, a lot to get through and we're going to have another show kind of just dedicated to where we are when it comes to voting uh, nationwide in North Carolina. Uh, but this was a, a split decision. And can you talk a little bit about what this decision means for the um, the effect that Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act may have going forward in challenging uh, different states and, and, and local governments procedures when it comes to voting? Like, does this undercut the strength of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act? Well, the strength of Section 2 is undercut uh, because the burden now of proving uh, the uh, uh, result, what we call the results end of it, is higher than it was previously. And you uh, now introduce this notion of totality of the circumstances into the, uh, uh, the, 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 the proofing uh, issue that you have to uh, satisfy. Uh, and if there is adequate means for people to vote, uh, then even if you find that there is some uh, minuscule uh, uh, 
provision that might impact a racial group differently, uh, that they can simply uh, find that in the totality, they were still able to vote because the process was open. And I don't think that you're in a, a situation where in most states, the uh, voting process is closed or is racially identified in that uh, sense. And then when you talk about results, this whole notion of de minimis impact is something now that you have to look at differently and strict scrutiny does not apply uh, in, uh, in, that, uh, in that situation because we're not talking about the intent uh, to uh, discriminate where in, uh, the strict scrutiny rule would apply. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know when we talk about the Voting Rights Act and, and the strength of it and, and the court's ability to undercut it, it just emphasizes why Congress needs to act, right? The Supreme Court is, is interpreting a statute. This isn't a decision um, that is focusing on the Constitution. The court is applying a, a legislative statute and Congress can, if it disagrees with the court's interpretation, um, overrule the court in that sense. Uh, right. Again, we're going we're gonna to continue talking about voting. It's, it's vitally important. Um, so for our audience, uh, please be on the lookout for future shows about the very important issues of voting in this state and, and nationally. The other case that we wanted to try to get to is the NCAA v. Alston case. And so this is a case where the Supreme Court, in essence, held that uh, some of the rules, the NCAA rules that restrict certain education-related benefits um, for student-athletes violate antitrust laws. And as, a, as an indirect result of the Supreme Court's decision, student-athletes can now make money by selling their name, likeness, and image. And we're seeing a lot of um, activity on the student-athletic front. Uh, we're going to be doing a deep dive into this case and the implications of this case next week. So please tune in next Sunday and we'll talk about that in greater detail. Uh, we've got a little bit of time left. And so for the, the last couple of minutes, I'd like for us to just talk about and get your impressions on what we can expect going forward with this court. So we've already talked about the court is um, has a 6-3 conservative majority. We've kind of talked about the politics on the court and we've got real important issues that are gonna continue to be presented to the justices. Uh, Professor Corbett, let's start with you. What are your thoughts about the court uh, going forward? I think you hit on all the most important things, which is I think all of the popular conversation after the appointment of Justice Coney Barrett was that essentially, now you have a 6-3 majority on the court. And prior to that, uh, the idea was that Justice Roberts would now be mitigated somewhat in his power because there were enough conservatives to get five votes, even if he decided to go, uh, and I hate to use the, the, I think the words were overused, but, but if he decided to go in a more liberal direction, uh, you would still have enough conservatives on the court to, to overrule or override that particular thought. But I think what we've seen thus far is that Robert still is incredibly important in terms of steering the direction of the court. I think it's no secret that he is an institutionalist and is very, very concerned about the premise that the court is just another partisan body. He does not want that to be the national reputation of that particular entity. So I think that's why you see him working so hard to uh, create law in the way that Professor Hauser described with the case out of Philadelphia. I do think, though, one of the things that will be interesting to watch is that, in, at least in my mind, 
the 6-3 conservative uh, ideology is really not what it appears to be. It's actually, I think, three liberal judges, three fairly conservative judges, and three very conservative judges. So you almost have a 3-3-3 split instead of a 6-3 split. And uh, with the fairly conservative judges being Kavanaugh, Roberts, and uh, Coney Barrett, and then the uh, super conservative judges being Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch, who I think want to push the court further right. So I still don't think we know what we have just yet, uh, but we'll find out soon because uh, they're taking on an abortion case next year, which I think is, is one of those cases that people have worked really hard to get this particular iteration of the court together to hear just such a case. And, and of course, as we uh, get more civil rights cases and more uh, speech and religion cases that get before the court, that I think we'll have a much firmer idea of what kind of court we have after this term. Thank you for that. Uh, Professor Moses, did you have any final thoughts? Just two brief thoughts. Um, the first, Professor Corbett kind of touched on is the importance of Chief Justice Roberts. Um, I'm sure everyone has heard a lot of the discussions surrounding whether or not Justice Breyer should retire. Um, with the midterms coming up next year um, and a lot of things going on, I think that's something that he should consider. Although it doesn't sound like it's something he's going to do, um, I fear that we're gonna be in the same place we were with Justice Ginsburg, particularly because of the um, Voting Rights Act being gutted and continually weakened. Um, the fact that the DOJ lawsuit that was filed in June probably won't go anywhere. Um, and the fact that Congress continues not to act on the Voting Rights Act. And so I worry about the midterms coming up and whether or not we'll be able to make any impact on the makeup this, of this court um, going forward. All right, thank you for that. And Professor Hauser, any final thoughts? I guess, I guess two things that I could add. One is that the justices are really not entirely predictable. Like they do surprise you. So um, there's a decision from 2020 called Bostock versus Clayton County, Georgia, in which the Supreme Court surprised some folks by holding that Title VII actually prevents discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. That was written by Gorsuch, which just floored me, actually. So, so Gorsuch was over there on that one. Here, he's way over on the right. So, so very, very interesting. Um, the other thing is that Justice Roberts, when he does these things, is very, he's just clever. I mean, he's just a really smart man. So his analysis sometimes may create problems in the future. So in uh, the Fulton case, the analysis essentially um, is, is directed at non-discrimination uh, or discrimination based on sexual orientation, but the provisions that he is dealing with also deal with other forms of discrimination. And so the analysis that invalidates uh, those provisions is equally applicable to everything else under those provisions. Mm -hmm. So the CSS is now free to discriminate on the basis of race if it wants, on the basis of sex. It's not just sexual orientation. So, um, so some of these decisions are really, uh, they make me nervous, put it that way. It makes me nervous. So. All right. Well, thank you for that. And, and thank all of you for your insight um, into these cases and the court. This was a, a great discussion. Of course, we'll invite you all back. Um, 
And we've been talking this hour with our colleagues in CCU law professors, Don Corbett, Tamika Moses, Susan Hauser. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for listening to the Legal Eagle Review. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any comments or questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleaglereview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.